in passing them today. I think we're going to do a great job. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Man Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you, and thank you for taking the time. This is a podcast where we work on connecting men in pursuit of their potential. We do that by embracing discomfort, cultivating community, and putting wind in each other's sails to help us find a happy and fulfilled life. Putting wind in our sails today, I'm excited to have Scott Deluzio on the call, host of the podcast Drive On, and of course, author of the book Surviving Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to come on your show and share my story and help out as many people as I can with you know what, what we talk about today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And before we jump into what we're talking about and really some of the context of, of the book, Surviving Son, that you wrote, I want to first make sure that our audience has a, a good opportunity to get introduced to you. So in your own words, feel free to introduce yourself really quick and we can jump into some questions. Yeah, sure. So I'm, again, Scott Deluzio. I served in the Army for about six years and did a deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. My younger brother, Stephen, he also was deployed to Afghanistan during that same deployment uh, at the same time. And he was tragically killed over there in Afghanistan, which is the basis of my book, Surviving Son. Talk about that experience, what that was like being over there at the same time as him and coming back home and coping with not only the loss, but the stresses of combat, PTSD, all that kind of stuff, and how I dealt with all of that type of stuff. I live out in the Phoenix, Arizona area, am a husband and father to three great kids, and you know, just trying to make make every day better than the last. So yeah. uh, that's that's really, really the goal here, right? Absolutely. And that's what we're all trying to do. And Phoenix, Arizona, wasn't like 114 yesterday? It was incredibly hot this past week. Yeah, it, oh. it was it was up there. Yeah. yeah, probably close to 114, 115 over the last few days. Oof. It's starting to cool down right now. It's about noon right now, and it's about 96 degrees. So yeah. that's cool for us. So. <laughs> yeah, that's well, it's mostly a dry heat. I've been out to Arizona once. Yeah. I mean, hot is hot, no matter which way you put it. Even right. the, I mean, when you see the triple digits, no, thank you. Right. So you and your brother going into the army, you know, the first question is, what was the inspiration behind that? I know a lot of folks have different reasons for entering the services and entering in the military. What was, I guess, that inception of the idea of, hey, let's serve, let's do this? Yeah. So my brother and I, we were raised in a very patriotic family. We grew up looking up to the military, first responders, all that kind of stuff, knowing that these people put on the uniform day in and day out, willing to risk their lives for complete strangers, people they've never met, they, they probably never will meet ever again, but they're willing to do it because they're serving something bigger and better than themselves. So after 9-11 happened, I, I was in college at the time. My brother was still in high school and it just really angered me what had taken place on 9-11. And like a lot of Americans, we wanted to do something, but I knew myself and my personality. If I was to drop out of college right then and there, I probably wasn't going back. Uh, and I was already partway through my degree. And I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll I'll stick it out with this, but I'll I'll revisit joining the military after I get out of college. Fast forward a few years, my brother, he was going up to school in Vermont at a college called uh, Norwich University, 
and military college is actually where the ROTC program was started. And he met a guy up there who was in the National Guard, the Vermont National Guard, and he learned a little bit about it. And he's like, you know what, I want to do that. So he signed up to join the Guard uh, while he was up there. And all of a sudden, my little brother became this soldier that I had been looking up to. You know, all my life, I'd always looked up to to the military. And now my little brother is this guy. And I'm like, wow, man, that is so cool. I was so proud of him for that. And then a little while after that, I I heard a report in the news uh, a few months later that the military was struggling to meet their recruiting numbers. And that really got under my skin. And it it started to make me pretty angry. Like, where were all these people after 9-11 who wanted to, you know, go and get some payback for what had taken place? Where are all those people? and Why are they having trouble finding them? And then I realized I was one of those people and I still hadn't done anything. And so, so I said, you know what, I am young enough. I'm fit enough. I'm perfectly capable for joining the military. I've got nothing but poor excuses. So I'm going to sign up as well. Mm. And that's really how it happened for us. What was that, that transition like? Because it sounds like you were done with college and you kind of, I imagine you're working a job and you're kind of like, okay, I'm going in. Walk us through kind of that process of leaving the job, going through recruitment, and then going through that basic training and realizing, okay, I'm in it now. Yeah. So like I said before, my brother joined the the National Guard. I also joined the National Guard. He was in Vermont. I was in Connecticut. So you know, two different states, but National Guard nonetheless. And uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with the National Guard, they they train one week in a month, two weeks a year. So you also have your regular civilian job that you work at. And you're right. I I did have a job after college uh, that I was working at. So I approached the HR manager and told her what my intentions were. And I was going to do it one way or the other, whether I got their blessing or not. Mm -hmm. It turns out, I didn't realize this at the time, there are laws in place that protect the jobs of people who go into the military and and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I I did it anyways. I was like, I don't care. I'm I'm doing this (laughs) with or without this job. And she's like, no, absolutely. We're we're 100% behind you. Let us know what we can do to help you out. And I said, well, I'm leaving for basic training in like two months. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm going to need someone to cover my shifts for, uh, for yeah. a little bit when I'm, when I'm gone, but they were, they were good with that. And when I came back, my job was still there for me. And then I, I just continued doing the training for, uh, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year throughout until around the time that we went to Afghanistan. I'm glad you said that really quick, because I didn't know that there were actually laws in place that would protect the job for anybody listening, if they're kind of on that edge or on the cusp of, you know, heading into enroll or, or sign up that that might be something that holds them back. It's like, well, what I'm going to do for money. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so the nice thing is, so obviously the job that I had, they, they didn't pay me while I was gone at basic training because I wasn't there doing the work, but mm-hmm. But I was getting paid through the military. So, uh, you know, bills that I had at home and things like that were still able to be paid. It wasn't like I was, you know, completely without money or anything like that. So, you know, it's military pay. It's not the best, but it still had money coming in. So, you know, if you're on the fence, you're kind of worried about that, you'll be taken care of. You know, I don't know the specifics of the laws, but I know they have to keep a job available for you, you know, when you come back from whatever training that you have to do or or things like that. They have to allow you for, for example, like I had to take two weeks off 
during the year for the annual training that we would do. They had to provide me with time off for that, in addition to the regular vacation time that I, I would normally get. So, so it was really great that they were able to do stuff like that for me. Nice. So I want to talk about the deployment and the sure. eventual the day of when your brother passed, because, you know, I, from speaking to a few friends of mine who have served and having some friends who are veterans, they'll tell you, like for anybody who's been to war, will tell you it's not a, a glamorous thing. What was the air like in the reality of this is real and this is happening? And what was that process like as the information of your brother's passing came to light? Yeah. So the day that he was killed, I was actually out on a mission in a, another part of the country. We were, we were both in Eastern Afghanistan. So uh, we were relatively close to each other, but we were on two separate missions at that time. And I got a call on the radio saying that the commanding officer was looking for me. Now I was just an enlisted guy. I was a sergeant. So if anyone knows anything about the chain of command, usually if the commanding officer is looking specifically for you and it doesn't pass information through the chain of command, it's either that usually did something really good or really bad. And I thought to myself, I was like, I'm not getting any medals today for the, the work that I did. So what went wrong? What is bad that's going on here? So I'm all nervous. I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what had gone on here and eventually linked up with the commanding officer. And he told me to come over to, you know, away from everybody else. He had some information for me, told me to take a knee. And he said that my brother's unit had been ambushed and that my brother had gotten hit. Now, up until this point, I never allowed myself to believe that anything bad could happen to him. I just assumed that we were going to both come home from this deployment, no major injuries or deaths or anything like that were going to happen because that's just what happens to other people in my mind. But yeah. right, that's the stuff that you hear about in the news that it's that other family. It might be from the next town over or, or whatever, but it's not, it's not you. It's not hitting you personally. It just happens to other people. So never occurred to me. So I jumped into big brother mode at that point. It's like, okay, he got hit. So you know, how can I get to him to be there for moral support? Or maybe I, if he needs blood or something like that, I can, I can be there. You could take some of my blood or whatever. Didn't even occur to me. And the commanding officer looked at me kind of funny and he was like, no, I, I don't think you get it. Like he's been killed. And that was like a punch in the gut to me. It was like the air just got sucked out of me and I couldn't wrap my head around what he was saying. Like it didn't make sense to me that there could possibly be a time without my brother yeah. in my life. You know, it just didn't make sense. And then, so I, like anyone else, I started grieving and, and crying, you know, the sad situation, everything. Um, but about 20 minutes after finding out about my brother being killed, our own unit started taking fire from the, this village that we had just come out of. So mm-hmm. not only was I in this dark grieving process part of my life, I had to put all that stuff aside because now literally bullets were flying over our heads and we had to fight back and Mm. come in the way of the job that I had to do. I was a squad leader. I had, I had about 10 soldiers or so that I had to lead. I had to make sure that they were positioned where they needed to be, that they had, you know, everything that they needed to do their job effectively. And my brother's passing while it was sad and tragic, the grief of that wasn't going to help me at all in Mm. the job that I had to do. So I had to really compartmentalize what I was going through and set that aside and focus on the mission. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard said before that, and maybe it was in the book, Extreme Ownership with Jack O'Willink, when he mentions, you don't rise to the standard, you, you fall to your preparation. And a lot of that is in the military prepping so much and 
and having that okay mission based kind of mentality. Yeah. Now that I have to imagine has its benefits and its application on the battlefield. How did that impact you after that initial gunfight? After through the rest of your time in the military, and then even acclimating to civilian life afterwards. Yeah, so you're absolutely right as far as falling back to your training and, and things like that, because it was very much muscle memory. Everything that I was doing was just okay. This is what I'm supposed to do. There's a here's here's these things I need to be checking on. I'm going to go check on those, and I, here's some things I need to be making sure everything is happening. And, and I just made sure all of that stuff was happening. It was very much muscle memory that I was able to do that, and I was very fortunate that I had really great leadership that gave me that training and that opportunity to learn how I needed to act that way. Now, downside was uh, to all of that is that when I came back home, I had a hard time turning it off and learning how to just be a person, not a soldier, not like I'm not walking down, you know, the streets of Kabul or anything like that, or mm-hmm. Baghdad or anything like I'm, that. That's not going on here at home where things are relatively safe. Yeah, sure. There's bad things that happen to people all the time and all over the place, but chances are I can go walk down my street right now and I'm not going to hit a roadside bomb. Or, you know, have uh, an ambush come and take me out or anything like that. But I had a really hard time turning that stuff off when I came back. I constantly was in a very high stress, like hypervigilant state where I was constantly, you know, looking for threats. You know, I'm just walking down the grocery store aisle and someone drops some cans or something and it set me off thinking Mm. that there's something going on. And so it was a difficult transition for me coming back home after being in combat like that just was, it it was just a, a thing that I needed to unlearn, Mm. you know, that, I mean, it's, it's always good to be aware of your surroundings, you know, because you don't want to become a victim of, you know, a robbery or, you know, anything like that, but you also have to be somewhat realistic too and say, okay, walking down this nice neighborhood in you know broad daylight, I'm probably not going to need to be super hypervigilant. I could probably let my guard down just a little bit here, but it took a while for me to learn how to deal with all of that after getting back from Afghanistan and, and especially after being, getting out of the military altogether. Yeah. So what was the opportunity you found? Because I imagine with the firefight right after and having to compartmentalize was there an opportunity that you found for yourself to fully allow yourself to grieve and deal with the, the passing of your brother? Because as you mentioned, that gut punch, right, is as so many of us could probably relate to when you tell us something that just it, it's not our reality, right? Right. Our reality is this. And you're telling me something that I just I can't fathom. Unfortunately, at some point in time, we have to alter that reality and that process it doesn't always happen fast. It's different for everybody and it looks different, but it's a process that that needs time and needs attention. Were you able to find that? And, and if so, where would you, did you find that opportunity and how did that work? You know, for me, it took a long time for me to realize that I was going down the wrong path with how I was dealing with things. When I came home, I was dealing with that hypervigilance that, that I was talking about. I wasn't sleeping very well because of probably that hypervigilance plus the grief and everything else that I was dealing with. I was 
coping with it in the wrong ways. I was drinking too much. I, I wasn't sleeping. All of that stuff led to anger issues. And, you know, it was just this big snowball effect where it was like this one thing, which if I dealt with that thing properly, I probably would have been okay. But then I added this next thing and then that next thing and the next thing. And it just came this big snowball uh, at the bottom of the hill. And it was just rolling over all sorts of things in my life. And it was, it was putting stress on relationships. It was making me be a bad father probably a bad husband, a bad, just a bad person overall. And so there came a time when I I was like, this is not who I want to be. I don't want to be this type of person. I don't want to be this type of husband. I don't want to be this type of father or son or whatever. I need to get help. And so I went to the vet center, which is affiliated with the VA, but they offer like counseling services. And that's where the healing started to take place for me. And it was a process. And I I say was, but it actually more accurately, I should say it is a process because I went to the vet center for a couple of years. Then I I decided I'm probably okay. I, I probably don't need this anymore. And I stopped going. And then I was okay for a little while. It wasn't great, but then I started slipping into some of those old habits that I, I was in. And then I found myself going down that same road and the snowball kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I said, okay, I obviously I need some more help. So I went back to the VA and and got the help that I needed. And for full transparency, I'm still getting help to this day. And this is almost 12 years later. And so, you know, to me, the the biggest takeaway from all of that is that our our mental health is not like our physical health in the sense that if you break your arm or a leg or something, you go to the doctor, you get a cast on it, it sets, it heals, and you get the cast off, you're good to go in most cases, right? You don't need follow-ups years and years later to make sure that it's still not broken. It's like, unless you did something to break it again, it's probably not going to break on its own like that. Whereas the mental health, you might need some additional follow-up and you might need to make this, think of it more of a a marathon, not a sprint where you're just getting through this real quick and then, okay, good, you're done and and you're healed and everything's rainbows and unicorns, right? It's it's not like that, you know, things might take some time. Yeah. I mean, I've found when it comes to mental fortitude, right? A lot of us think, okay, I remember reading the books, you know, what do mentally strong people do and taking the cold showers and things like that. And it's, it's really maintenance, just like for anyone who has a a fitness regimen, they know if you stop working out, the body starts reflecting your lack of attention to your fitness. And yeah, I think it's the same thing with mental fortitude for so many of us when we start neglecting really the things that our mind needs, our our inner selves need, and really what our body needs. We start regressing back to some old habits to cope with the lack of that maintenance. For a lot of men in general, and even for veterans who might be kind of going through their anxiety or or maybe a little bit of the, the PTSD, so many of us love to put on the shell or love to put on the aura, like, I got this, I got this. And it's hard to sometimes admit, like, maybe I don't have this. And in order for us to do that, we really have to hang up the ego, right? And that could be so hard for so many of us to do. And I would also say there's probably a higher degree of difficulty for our veterans who have been mentally tough, who have been through such adversity where 
as you mentioned, looking up to your younger brother, and we look up to these servicemen and women as heroes and as these strong figures of freedom. But it almost ups that degree of difficulty in admitting needing help. What would you tell a veteran right now who who maybe thinks I have this under control? Well, you know, for so long, we've been the people that other people look to for help, right? Mm. When when there's a natural disaster, a lot of times the military is called in, the Coast Guard, you know, whoever is called in to help with that natural disaster. In these people's worst times in their lives, their houses are destroyed. Sometimes they've lost loved ones, whatever. There's those people, the military are there to help. And it's just so ingrained that you're there to help other people. You don't even stop and think that maybe, just maybe at some point in time, you might need some help yourself. And it's hard to switch that mindset in your head to say, look, I think I might need some help. But if you don't do that, you can't possibly be the type of person who's going to give your 100% effort to help other people. So when you're flying in an airplane, I like to give this example. They say when the, if the oxygen mask comes down, put yours on first so that you can help other people and help, you know, maybe a, a child or someone who you're, you're traveling with to, to put their mask on. And the reason why they say that is because if you pass out while you're struggling to put your kid's mask on, you're not going to be any use to them or yourself. And mm-hmm. the whole idea of you being a helper is just going to all collapse. It's going to fall apart. So you do have to take care of yourself. So that way you can operate at that max efficiency level so that you can be a hundred percent present so that your mind is clear, it's focused, and you could do your job and do the things that you need to do to be able to help other people. And if you think that, oh, I, I'll just, I'll just suck it up. I'll deal with it. I'll just be a man about it. And you know, whatever being a man sometimes is admitting that you need help and mm-hmm. going to talk to somebody about it, finding the, the right help and resources for whatever it is that you're going through, being able to admit that kind of thing that takes some courage mm-hmm. and just cowering away and not dealing with it. That to me is more of a sign of weakness than going and asking for help. Yeah. I, I forgot what philosopher said it, is saying, uh, he who is smart is aware of how little he actually knows. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, he who is strong is aware of where he's weak and when he is weak and needs help. And, and that's been, sure. if I'm being transparent with you, that's been a work in progress for me as well. Cause I suck at asking for help <laughs> and my wife will see me blue in the face <laughs> and I'm not a fair skinned person. So it takes a lot right. for me to get blue in the face. <laughs> She'd be like, do you need help? And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, thank God. <laughs> I mean, exactly. But think about how many things in life that you do ask for help, whether you think about it as asking for help or not, your car starts making a noise and you bring it to the mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. The mechanic's there to help fix that car. I don't know how to fix a car. I'm not a mechanic myself. I can't do that. I'd end up with a busted car if I just dealt with it. Oh, you know, let's just forget about it and let's just mm-hmm. deal with it. I'll just keep driving it and I'll just keep riding it harder and harder and harder. That thing's going to break down eventually, right? Yeah. You know, so it, it's things like that. It, change your mindset. And it's not weak to go ask for a mechanic for help. It's not admitting that you're not a man or lesser of a man because you go and ask a mechanic to help you fix your car. It's like mm-hmm. these things are complicated machines. They're, they got computers and stuff in them now. It's not like it was. 40 years ago when cars were, you know, just big boxes of metal with an engine in it. Yeah. They have computers in there and chips and thermometers and all that, like smart windshields nowadays. I didn't even know that. Like when we have those self-driving cars, all the technologies in the windshield, 
So yeah. what used to be a piece of glass is not <laughs> just a piece right. Of glass. Exactly. So so you know, expecting that you're going to know all of that stuff if you're not a mechanic yourself, like that, that's just kind of crazy. So you know why why would you think any different for you know anything else? Like especially with your mental health, you, you know, we're, mm-hmm. most of us are not therapists, we're not counselors or psychologists, whatever. So why wouldn't we go and ask for a little bit of help on that? Yeah. I wrote down, don't ignore the check engine light, right? We, yeah. We had this check engine light in our head. You wouldn't drive around with that check engine light for, <laughs> for too long. You're probably right. going to go get that checked out, especially if you care about your car. If you care about yourself, don't ign- ignore your own check engine light. I want to talk about the book really quick, Surviving Sun. Yeah. What was, I guess, the the inspiration behind wanting to start writing that book and and how that process came about? Yeah, when I first started writing it, it was actually shortly after I got back from Afghanistan. And it wasn't in any way, shape, or form supposed to be a book, but it was just me writing down notes about things that had happened because I know over time our memories play tricks on us. I knew that eventually my kids, maybe even if I was lucky enough to have grandkids, would want to ask questions about what had happened while I was in Afghanistan and I didn't want to forget. So I started writing things down. And a few years ago, I decided that those notes that were just collecting dust should be more than just notes in a notebook or whatever. They they could actually help some people. Learning from my mistakes, the things that I did wrong, stuff that I talked about earlier, learning about what combat is like for, you know, from my perspective. Um, But also it was about giving my brother a voice. You know, he's gone. He doesn't have a voice anymore. And so as much as it is my story in here, it's also his story. And I, I tell a lot about who he was the type of person he was, the type of soldier he was, and things that he experienced while he was deployed as well, so that the readers can get a better understanding of what it means to serve in combat. And uh, the sacrifice is that not only the, the soldiers and the Marines and airmen, sailors, everyone like that, not just the sacrifices that they make, but also the sacrifices that the families make when one or more of them don't make it back home. Yeah, absolutely. What do you hope people really take away from the book if if they, they pick it up? I see it's it's available where all big books are available. What do you hope they take away from it? Yeah, so it's to me the biggest thing is for the the veterans or the the service members who read it, I want them to learn from my mistakes. That to me is is the biggest thing because there's there's no sense in having more than one person struggle through stuff like I did the way I did. Realize that there's healthy ways to deal with the things that you're going through. Everyone deals with PTSD, deals with other traumas in their lives differently, but there are healthy ways to deal with it. It doesn't require you to be constantly drinking or never sleeping or anything like that. That just leads you down a road that isn't good. Nothing good is going to come of that. So deal with things in a healthier way. And I talk about how I, I dealt with it and how I am working on getting to a better place. But I also hope that the civilians, the you know people who've never served, I hope they learn about the sacrifices that we make in the military community. Again, not just the, you know, not just when someone doesn't make it back home, but you know, leaving your your family for, you know, upwards of a year when yeah. you're deployed overseas. Uh, my my son, he was born in November of 2010. Uh, sorry, 2009. And I left for Afghanistan in December of 2009. And mm-hmm. so when I came back home, he was already about nine months old and I only knew him for a few days. Mm. So like, that's pretty significant. Like, 
at that point of his life, I, I barely even knew who he was and I hardly felt like a father. And, but that's just one example of a sacrifice that's made and coming back home, not really feeling like you had a place in your own home. Like things were just kind of different, you know? Yeah, no. And, and I could say it's, it's a sacrifice that's acknowledged for, for myself and on behalf of modern man and, and our audience, thank you for the sacrifice you've made. Thank you for the sacrifice your family's made, the service, and also taking your experience and putting it in this book and sharing it with the world because so many of us take experiences to our graves and nobody gets to learn from them or grow from them. And for you to share not just your story, but your brother's story as well, is truly a service that this world is better for. And Scott, I I appreciate you so much for doing that. And I'd love to make sure that our audience, our listeners, our watchers have an opportunity to follow you, listen to the Drive On podcast, and and also get a copy of the book for themselves and, and their coffee table. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And and again, the, the book is available on Amazon in any format that you like to consume it in. So there's a the Kindle ebook, hardcover, paperback, and newly released is the audiobook. And so so those are available there on Amazon. Uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, uh, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, just search for Drive On Podcast or go to driveonpodcast.com and you can find all the ways to subscribe to it there. And again, I, I appreciate this opportunity to come on the show and and share my story and my experiences with you and your audience. Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'll have those links in the show notes as well for anybody that's listening, whether it be on their phone, their iPad, or even on the computer, you can just go ahead in the description and hit that link to get right to the source for those books or for the uh, website for the podcast. But Scott, this has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate the the value that you've given us. I'm going to recap a couple quick points that I wrote down along the way, because I think it's important to kind of chunk some of those gems that that we have in the conversation, because these 30 minutes can go by pretty quick. Poor excuses. I loved when you mentioned looking around and you're saying, okay, where are all these people signing up? And you realize, okay, I have nothing but poor excuses. And sometimes if we look in the mirror, we realize the thing that we want to go into in life and the things we want to do, we stop ourselves from doing it because we hold on to these poor excuses. And I always say, if you want those limitations, you can fight for them or you can let them go and go ahead and do the thing that you dream of. Other people, when you mentioned about, you know, it wasn't a reality at first. These are things that happen to other people, not not ourselves. A lot of us fall into that trap of thinking that the evils of the world, thinking that the bad in the world is things that happen out there and never here. And we never want to be the unfortunate ones to find out the hard way that that's not the case, but just know that, you know, every day is precious for us. Leadership. I love how you, how you mentioned, you know, having good leadership around you, because I think a lot of us in life look for examples on who to follow, what to follow. And that leadership I think was, was ingrained. I think I hear tidbits of you following the leadership of your brother, your brother following the leadership of you and the family. You you mentioned growing up, your family having that leadership of growing up in a patriotic family, and even the leadership that you're showing with your book and with your process of letting folks know and letting veterans know, hey, it's not okay to cope in these certain things because this didn't lead down a good path for me. So you are showing leadership in that regard. Be a man be a man sometimes means asking for help. Let's be honest, right? We, we yeah. like to say, ah, I got this. I got this. We don't always have it. We don't. 
And that's okay because sometimes being a man, as I mentioned before, those who are wise know what they don't know. Those who are strong are aware of when they are weak. And that is why it's so important to lean into that. And of course, uh, check engine light. Don't ignore the check engine light, guys. If there's something that's bugging you, if there's something on that's not dealt with, that's in that apartment, we like to compartmentalize things, but if you've put that box in the corner and it's gained dust, it might be time to address it, open it up, and no longer ignore the check engine light and address that elephant in the room. Scott, thank you so much to the listeners, to the watchers. Thank you for making it to the end with us. If you liked this episode, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and let us know what we're doing and how we're doing. And of course, share this with a friend that you know can benefit from us from this. This would mean the world to us. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. You can catch a new episode each and every single week. I hope you guys go out there with that wind in your sails to be a modern man and as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain, but you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow.